I'm a, uh, a pretty big Malcolm Gladwell fan. Any Malcolm Gladwell fans here? Yeah, a few. Um, I've, I've always been a fan of his books, and, uh, but I've recently discovered his podcast. It's called Revisionist History. He says it's devoted to things overlooked and misunderstood. What I like about Mike, Malcolm Gladwell is he's a, just a real curious fella. Overlooked and misunderstood. This morning we're going to talk about the death of Jesus And I think the cross has been misunderstood. And I say that not because I think I've got it all figured out, but because I observe all the arguments and division that take place over it. And I also believe that because it's been misunderstood, it's also often overlooked. I'll explain that in a minute. Here's the story I grew up with about why Jesus died on the cross. Starts with me sinning. And that sin separated me From God and destined me for eternity apart from him in hell. And that's the bad news. But there's good news. And the good news is that God sent his only son, Jesus, the the only one who was actually innocent, to die on the cross for my sins. And this gift, if accepted, offered me forgiveness, cleansing, and eternity with God in heaven. And for much of my life, I've seen the main thing being getting people to accept this free gift. Anybody else here grow up with that story, something like it? Yeah. Is the story wrong? No, it's not wrong. Uh, But I believe that it's incomplete. And it is this incompleteness which is so often spoken of as being complete that, in my opinion, has done some harm. Um, I saw a a guy named J.I. Packer once said, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes an untruth. And I believe this story I grew up with is truth, but I don't think it's all of the truth. But we get in trouble when we make it whole truth. I imagine a lot of you here can identify with this story. You grew up with a similar story, and maybe you don't believe it all anymore. I get that. Here's my question. What do you now believe? What have you replaced that belief with, or those parts of the belief with? Going back to what Malcolm Gladwell said, I believe that the cross becomes overlooked when it's misunderstood, but we then don't do the work to replace what we've rejected with something else. I know that was a really long sentence, so let me say it again. I believe that the cross becomes overlooked when it's misunderstood, but we then don't do the work to replace what we've rejected with something else. So my hope this morning is to present what I hope is a helpful alternative way of thinking about what happened that first Good Friday. And for anyone getting a little nervous, um, I believe it, it totally fits orthodoxy. It's not opposite of what I grew up with, but it does have some tweaks that I think are important. And they've helped me to more fully embrace what I think is a real pivotal point in history. Now, before we get to where we are, where we find ourselves today, let's go back in history a little bit. We're living in a time when what exactly happened that first Good Friday is, is often debated, but it's not a new thing. It's, it's been, there's been great debate since the, the event even happened. So for the first thousand years of Christianity, when people were asked about Jesus' death on the cross, the first thing that would pop into their heads was what we now call the Christus Victor view. Think of it a little like Star Wars. There's good and evil, light and dark, Jedi and Sith. 
There's a cosmic war going on all around us, and Jesus came in and defeated evil, and he didn't even need a lightsaber. It was through his death and resurrection that the victory was achieved. Now, alongside this was something called the ransom theory. In the midst of this cosmic battle, humanity was caught up in it and was now held captive by Satan, powerless to free ourselves. But Jesus, through his death on the cross, set us free. Mark 10.45 says that he gave his life as a ransom for many. This was the primary belief for a long time. But then some began asking the question, what about our culpability as humans? What about our culpability as humans? After all, it wasn't simply some cosmic force that caused the evil. It was humans. And not just those humans, but this human. So more was needed. Anselm was the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, during the 11th century, and he developed what was called the satisfaction theory of the cross. Humanity had rebelled, and God had been dishonored, and something needed to be done about that. And the only answer was for us to experience his wrath and be punished. But instead, God sent his son to take on that. Now, fast forward 500 years to the time of the Reformation, 16th century. At this time, there was a belief that at death, the soul needed further purification and punishment before a person could go to heaven. So there developed this idea that a person would spend time in a place called, anybody know? Purgatory. Good job. Before they could go to heaven. Now, there's, there's not a lot of real evidence in Scripture for this, but what made things really bad was that those who had money had privileges over those who didn't. For example, a family member of rich Uncle Joe, who has just recently died and who his family knew was destined for a long period of purification and punishment, they could purchase an indulgence. You know that word? They could purchase an indulgence which would shorten his time in purgatory. So awesome for rich Uncle Joe, not so much for poor Uncle Jim. And this is one of the things that deeply irritated Martin Luther, who was one of the leaders of the Reformation. One of his adversaries was a guy named Johann Tetzel, who collected those indulgences. And he was known for this clever marketing jingle. A coin in the coffer rings, and a soul from purgatory springs. Clever, right? But at the heart was tremendous injustice, and it fired up folks like Martin Luther. See, the reformers did not say that punishment wasn't needed, but they said that the punishment had already taken place. The punishment for all of humanity's sin had been poured out on Jesus, and to say that it needed to happen again and again robbed the cross of its power. So you might know this view is called penal substitutionary atonement. Ooh, carry that in your back pocket this week. Penal simply means penalty. Punishment. Substitutionary just means a substitute is involved. And atonement is just the fancy word for the process by which we are reconciled to God. So penal substitutionary atonement is the primary view that has shaped evangelicalism today, and it definitely shaped the kind of church I was a part of growing up. Now let me pause for a second. A lot of history. Some of you like history. Some of you are like, eh. 
Context matters. Here's what I mean. Christus Victor, the first thousand years, people understood battle in a way that we don't really understand it today. Anselm, he lived during feudal times where there were feudal lords, and it was a big deal to honor those feudal lords, and there were consequences when that didn't happen. And then the Reformation is super legal, right? There's crime, so there should be punishment slash justice. It's important to note that Martin Luther was training to be a lawyer in his earlier life. God is in all of this, but so too are humans. It doesn't diminish God's role, but it's important to remember because we all live out of the context that we've been born into. And these contexts change over time. We're shaped by our context, and that's okay. Just want to point that out. So back to today. Um, Let me say that a lot of where we're going from here on, um, I have really been shaped by a fellow named N.T. Wright, and specifically his book, um, the, the Day the Revolution Began, which Ben reminded me we actually have in the lending library. So if you want to dig a little deeper, it's called The Day the Revolution Began, and it's awesome. So I mentioned earlier that the story that I grew up with, it's not wrong, but I do believe it's incomplete. And part of the reason is um, it's all about me. Uh, N.T. Wright uh, kind of frames this with a goal, a problem, and a solution. So here's what I grew up with. The goal is that I go to heaven when I die. The problem is that sin prevents me from going to heaven. And the solution is that Jesus' death on the cross brings forgiveness and allows me to go to heaven when I die. Okay? I think, I think a lot of you, you know that. You know that. N.T. Wright asks, what if we have the goal wrong? How would that change everything else? I remember when I was younger, hearing the story about the thief on the cross, the guy that's on the cross next to Jesus. And in that moment of death, he comes to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be be with me in paradise. You know, in in that last moment before his death, he accepted Jesus as his Savior, and he gets to go to heaven. Or I remember hearing similar stories of people doing the same thing on their deathbed after living life as a hellion. You ever use the word hellion? You should. Good. Hellion. It's a great word. You know what my response was to stuff like that? I was a little jealous. Here I was trying to live this good Christian life, not getting to have all the fun that the hellions were having. And then they get to live however they want and then still get to go to heaven. You know, to say that my view of all this was a little warped is quite the understatement. But that's where I was. Because that was the goal. And that was the problem. And that was the solution. Our focus this morning is going to be on just six of the verses that we read from Colossians. They're going to be on the screen. We're going to read 13 and 14 and then skip down to 19 through 22. He, being God, has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now just pause right there. Keep that up. Key words here. Just look look at these words. Rescue, redemption, forgiveness. Big words here. No mention yet of Christ's death in that, but, but those are key words as we move forward. All right, verse 19. For in him, this is speaking of Jesus, 
All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. Key words here, we see the word reconcile, blood, cross, estranged. Go, go back to that uh, verse 19. Do you see a goal there? Do you see a goal that's not go to heaven? This is God's goal. God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. I think that's the real goal, to reconcile to himself all things. What does reconcile mean? We recently learned that Tom Brady was getting a divorce. He and Giselle cited irreconcilable differences as the reason. It means that they believe that there's no longer hope for reconciliation. We see it all the time. That's the, that's the main, when people get divorced, that's normally, that's the leading thing they put in there. Paul says that we're, we're in the same boat with God. We were estranged from God. That's the word there. He also mentions that God rescued us. Now, why did we need to be rescued? Well, he says that we were rescued from the power of darkness. That's pretty strong, isn't it? That doesn't sound good. Now, when Paul's listeners heard the word rescue, they immediately thought back to the Exodus. What's the Exodus? Well, it's when God's people were in Egypt. They came after Joseph, led them there for a famine, and then over a few hundred years, they became slaves. They couldn't get out on their own. And God came as the ultimate rescuer to set his people free. After a bunch of plagues and miracles, that's what he did. He rescued them from a power more powerful than they were. And Paul is saying that the same thing has happened with humanity. There are powers that we give control to, and then those powers enslave us. And the Bible calls these idols. Now, when we think of idolatry, we normally think of someone bowing down to a statue, right? Is that kind of what you think of? But it's much deeper than that. When we give ourselves to something or someone other than God, we are committing idolatry. Said another way, when we turn to something or someone to give us what only God was meant to give us, which is the essence of worship when we talk about worship, we are committing idolatry. And the Bible over and over again links idolatry with slavery. This story is told in all kinds of other stories. We see it echoed in all of our favorite stories. It's Edmund's story in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He has believed a lie that the witch can offer him something he doesn't have. And it's not just Turkish delight, as great as that is. It's power. He wants more power than his brother Peter has. But the lie leads to action, and the action leads to slavery. We'll come back to that. When we commit idolatry, when we worship created things rather than the creator, we are giving over power. And when we give over power, we can no longer be who God created us to be. 
And do you know who God created us to be? Well, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says that we've been called to be ministers of, anybody know the word? Reconciliation. There it is. Ministers of reconciliation. God's ultimate goal is to reconcile to himself all things, and we're meant to partner with him in his work. So here's how N.T. Wright would lay out the goal, the problem, and the solution. The goal is it's not so much about me. It starts with God's goal to reconcile to himself all things, and you and I have a major role to play in that work. But there's a problem, and it's not simply sin, individual sins. It's idolatry, giving allegiance to forces and powers within creation, and the result is slavery. What's the solution? Well, it's still Jesus' death on the cross, but listen to how it's framed. Jesus' death on the cross breaks the powers of the idols and rescues us, setting us free so that we can live as we were intended to live, which is present participation in God's plan to reconcile to himself all things. That's pretty cool, isn't it? It gets better. Because listen to this. This life, this partnership doesn't end with our death. It goes on for eternity. So it is about eternity, but it's framed a different way because the work starts now. I didn't, I didn't hear a lot of that. So how exactly did Jesus' death on the cross break the powers and rescue us? Paul shares some really vivid language in the next chapter. I think we've got it on the screen. This is Colossians 2. He says, And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. And listen to this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. I want to read how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this. It's not on the screen, but just listen to the same verses. This is what Eugene Peterson says in the message. When you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it. All sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, that old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross. And listen, and marched them naked through the streets. That's epic victory. Let's go back to Edmund's story. Once he realizes what he's done and what it's led to, what's he do? Nothing. He's powerless to free himself. He can't do anything. He needs to be rescued. And that's exactly what Aslan does. When Aslan dies, he is dying in place of Edmund, right? He is willingly dying so that Edmund doesn't have to. That's absolutely true. That's what everyone sees. This is the story that I grew up with. But it doesn't stop there. Because in his death is also something bigger, something more explosive, something that they don't yet see. Do you remember? Do you remember the story? In his death, he is overthrowing the powers 
so that things can return to the way they were meant to be. Listen to this. He's overthrowing always winter but never Christmas, which is a terrible thing. He's setting free the slaves that have been turned to stone by the witch. It's redemption. It's rescue. It's the reconciliation to himself of all things. Something happened at the cross. Something happened. I, I reject the belief that Jesus died simply to show us what true love looks like. That's a view. I reject the belief that the crucifixion was simply an act of injustice, that the Romans and the religious leaders finally got him. I think it's a part of it, but I don't buy that it's simply that. Jesus had lots of opportunities to get out of it, but he didn't. He talked about it well before it was time. We see him in the garden agonizing about what's about to happen, but at the end, he willingly chooses to go to the cross because he knew that it was part of God's plan. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus died during one of the major Jewish holidays when everyone would come from all the distant lands. And I find it interesting that he could have chosen Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which commemorated the time when the high priest would kill an innocent and unblemished lamb as a sacrifice for all Israel's sins. The people's sins would then be forgiven. That would make sense based on the story I've heard. But he didn't choose that holiday. You know what holiday he chose? Passover. And what were people supposed to remember at Passover? It was when God rescued his people from Egypt, from slavery. Pharaoh was a powerful man, and in plague after plague, he refused to listen to Moses, who was God's representative. And so in the last plague, death came to Egypt, but death passed over those who were covered by the blood of the sacrificed lamb. So I think Jesus' death is connected to the Day of Atonement, individual sins being forgiven, but it's bigger. It's about slaves being rescued and becoming who they were meant to be, God's people, his new nation. N.T. Wright says it's all about vocation. Now fast forward to Jesus' day. The blood of this new and ultimate sacrificial lamb was going to provide forgiveness for sins, right? But it wasn't simply so we could go to heaven when we died. It was way bigger. It was about today. It was so that we could be rescued and set right so that we could be about the task of partnering with God in his goal of reconciling to himself all things. I am uh, I was thinking about this. Um, I have had lots of questions in my life, especially in my adult life when it comes to matters of faith. Lots of questions, lots of doubt. I've talked about it a lot when I've been up here. Um, if I could boil down things to why I'm still here and why I'm a Christian, it, it really boils down to two things. One is I believe Jesus' way of living is the best way of living, and it's connected to the kingdom of God. I just can't get past that. And I believe that I'm incapable of living that kind of life on my own, that I need help, that I need to be rescued from myself <laughs> and from all the powers around me 
And I believe that Jesus did that. I am so glad that every Sunday we're reminded of these foundational beliefs when we say together the Apostles' Creed. And I'm so grateful that we end our time together by remembering the rescue that took place as we come to the table. And that's what we get to do this morning. God loves you, and there's nothing you've done or could ever do that could go beyond that love, as was evidenced by Jesus' death on the cross. And he invites each one of us to receive this love, this gift. Let's pray. Spirit, we welcome you in this place. Father, we thank you for your love. Jesus, our Savior, we thank you for living this beautiful and compelling life, dying the sacrificial death, and being raised to life, conquering death. We owe you everything. We're grateful to be here. We're grateful for life. We ask this morning that you would just renew our minds with truth, remind us of what this time means as we come to the table. We say these beautiful words. We receive what we can receive nowhere else. We thank you for your love. Amen.